Few writers have occupied such an imposing place at the heart of English letters this past century as George Orwell. For any journalist or political novelist, there he is, towering up, an invincible, fearless protector, standing like a rock against the hordes, black-haired, black-mustachioed, full of power and mysterious calm. What a task then for Sandra Newman to take the most famous novel by this most famous of writers and to turn it inside out. And not only turn it inside out, but to then dazzlingly set her sights on what might be considered the biggest blind spot of that otherwise most perceptive of writers, women. If you thought life on Airstrip One was tough for Winston Smith, you ain't seen nothing yet. Because in Julia, Sandra Newman's reimagining of Orwell's nightmare, if men have it hard, you can bet women have it harder. Taking the roughly sketched character of Julia, Winston's love interest and possible betrayer, Sandra Newman gives her a surname, a history, a life of her own. In short, she breathes a soul into her. And in doing so, not only does she allow readers to revisit 1984 with new eyes, but creates a novel that stands tall in its own terrifying pair of jackboots. Sandra Newman, welcome to the Shakespeare and Company podcast. Thanks, Adam. Hello. Hi. Um, so I guess where I want to begin, if I, if I understand this rightly, it was in fact the, the George Orwell estate which sought you out to um to write this book um and my my experience of reading your novels um and having interviewed you once before is that you are very much a writer that plows her own furrow um so i'm just curious to know how you sort of responded to this summons was it always a kind of uh an easy yes on your part it was um <laughs> it's funny because orwell was is an author who perhaps perhaps not obviously, but is was really important to me when I was young. Mm-hmm. I mean, really in my political formation, uh, more than my formation as a writer. But but also like his his dictum that all art is propaganda mm-hmm. really sunk in for me. It was one of those things where at, at like 1920, about the time I read all all of his political nonfiction, like back to back. Um it just, it blew me away and it seemed like one of those perceptions that you'd had in a fuzzy way before that, that nobody would admit was true. Mm-hmm. And just finally somebody had given you the permission to believe the thing that you'd always believed. Mm-hmm. That really impressed me and it's kind of formed the way I thought about writing ever after that. So this was, it was bizarre. It was like a dream that you had about something wonderful that would happen and then <laughs> find out it wasn't true. Um, And how it happened. So we say the Orwell estate. And when we talk about the Orwell estate, we have this vague idea of Orwellian relatives. Mm -hmm. But actually, it's it's this guy, Bill Hamilton, who represents the estate and takes care of it. Um, There is like Orwell's son is still alive and he is involved in the running of the estate, but only very tangentially. He's he's not really I mean, he's I would I don't want to say he's not literary, but he's not really. I think he's an engineer or something. Mm-hmm. He doesn't really meddle that much. So Bill Hamilton is the the literary agent who who takes care of the day-to-day of the estate, and he's always been very protective of Orwell's legacy. So at this time, I think there was a feeling, um, there have always been people who wanted to write this book, mm-hmm. 1980, sure. Point of Julia, and they've approached Bill over the years and talked about it, and he's always said, no, no, no. But with both with the Me Too movement and with 1984 coming out of copyright. Um, well, it's, it was almost out of copyright then, so mm. the timing isn't perfect, but still. 
um, there was were more and more people talking about it. And he knew the book was going to be written. And he wanted to find somebody who he trusted to write mm-hmm. the book. Um, so they came to me, basically. I wasn't their first choice. I was their second choice. <laughs> I'm not going to be saying this everywhere, but I will say it to you. I was actually their second choice. And I don't know who the first choice was, although Bill did represent Hillary Mantel, who was then still alive. So right. probably, I like to think it was her. And I was like number two after Hillary Mantel. But anyway, I was the second choice. And I went and I went away and, you know, I was very excited. Mm-hmm. But I said, I don't know if I can do this. Let me read 1984 and think about it. Mm-hmm. And long story short, like I started reading 1984. And by the time I got through chapter one, I was already writing the first page of my mm. book because it's intuitively obvious to me somehow what it should be. And and so that's um, what I was, ne- I was going to ask about your your sort of experience with 1984. So I'm assuming this was a return to 1984. And like, had you, was it a book that um, you said his writing had been really important to you, his political writing, but had as your formation as a novelist, was 1984 one of your kind of uh, foundational texts or did you have a more ambivalent relationship to it? It wasn't really. Um, in fact, I don't remember the first time I read it. It's it's one of those books, I think for a lot of people, it's just part of the atmosphere, mm-hmm. the air that we breathe. It's like, it's in our intellectual formation, the way being taught to walk is. Mm-hmm. So, so I think it's, I don't remember the first time I read it. I do have a memory of the second time I read it, which was about the time that I was reading through all of his political nonfiction. Mm. I read 1984 again. And on the second reading, I was really distracted by the treatment of Julia, by Mm. the treatment of women. And I really, and shocked that I hadn't noticed it the first time around. I think this is like a common experience for contemporary readers that Mm. you read something that you loved or that you just took for granted when you were a kid and you are shocked by the racism or sexism or homophobia mm-hmm. in it and just don't understand. You know, it terrifies you for your childish self. Like, sure, yeah, yeah. You know, how corrupt was I already when I came to this book that this natural to me? Um, so anyway, I was, I was reading it and I, you know, I was then kind of intellectually in an argument with it and I felt also especially at that time, I had real trouble with the fact that so many male authors who I loved did not recognize my humanity. Mm -hmm. And I felt that perhaps they were right. Mm. That's the terror. Like you read these books and you're looking for evidence that they're wrong. You're looking because it's really, it's a really threatening thing. The people you admire most, the people you want to be like, the people who you would most want to be recognized by actually don't entertain the possibility that you could be um, a person of intellectual importance or even really a fully human person. Mm-hmm. So, so that was really difficult for me. Um, and for some reason, like I almost, I still have a bit of this. I'm a little bit in denial about it. <laughs> and I was then. <laughs> like I didn't <laughs> well. He wasn't one of the authors who I began to have trouble with or to mm-hmm. have knee-jerk negative response to I just kind of put it in brackets and moved on so Mm. so this was really an opportunity to revisit that and to reconcile it and to to find a way out of it Mm -hmm. because I guess that's sometimes the tendency isn't it to um 
perhaps not so much among writers, but sometimes against readers, is that once you identify the the kind of the problematic element to a writer, it almost kind of sometimes can rule that writer out in a way. It's like, well, I'm not going to read Orwell because, you know, he clearly uh, he clearly had sort of misogynist tendencies, for example. And I guess it must be quite liberating and quite empowering in a way to be able to then say, okay, no, I'm not going to just kind of ignore Orwell, but I'm going to kind of engage with him you know, get to the guts of his work, turn it inside out and make something new from it. Yeah, it's like, it's like a cage match, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> sort of like, I mean, that's maybe not that adversarial quite, but, but you think like, oh, well, now I'm an adult and I can write novels too. Mm. So I'll write a novel that, that actually kind of grapples with this and shows exactly how he was wrong. Mm -hmm without dismissing the parts, the, you know, the majority of his work where I think he was right. You know, like I, I want to kind of meld the two into a big ball of what feels right to me. I mean, obviously, like I'm going to be wrong about something too, that, you know, I'm not <laughs> to, that I am the infallible uh, person here, but, but there is that feeling like this is, this is a way of creating a synthesis mm -hmm. that, will move us forward without losing um, what was there before. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, f the first thing that becomes clear very early on while reading Julia is just how much by only having, let's say, the, the male perspective on Airstrip 1 and Oceania and this whole society with Big Brother, of how much of human experience was excluded from, um, from, from 1984. So, you know, Winston Smith being... In a sense, a kind of you know, apart oppressed by the society, but I guess the equivalent of the kind of you know the the straight white man in uh, in contemporary parlance who sort of may be oppressed, but there is a kind of this intersection of lots of other sort of different prejudices and lots of different sort of like social um, social oppressions to to contend with as well. Um, was it? And I, I fear the answer to this, but was it much of an imaginative leap for you to be able to kind of understand what additional oppressions and what additional additional challenges Julia would face compared to Winston in uh, in this society, or was it easy just to draw on contemporary society and the life that you've lived? It was pretty easy. I mean, it was easy because Orwell actually starts to go there mm -hmm. but then doesn't. Um, mm -hmm. He actually has a lot of stuff in 1984 about reproductive rights. Mm. So in, in my book, there's a lot of focus on artificial semination, the art sem treatments. Mm -hmm. And that's in Orwell. He, he invented that and writes a lot about that and sees it as a horror that artificial insemination is going to replace like natural childbirth mm. and natural sex. And that's the, the plan of the party is to eliminate sex. But what he doesn't really think about, like he has, you know, in in the world of 1984, extramarital sex is completely verboten mm -hmm. and he is allowed to do it and you can go to a labor camp and be killed for doing it. But Winston and Julia have unprotected sex for weeks mm -hmm. without anyone ever thinking about what will happen if she gets pregnant. Mm. And it's not her first affair. She says she's had the like, scores of lovers before. How did she not get pregnant? There's no contraception in this world yeah. by definition. And Orwell just doesn't think about it. 
Um, and so to me, it seemed obvious, like you can just put these thing, two things together. This is what people would do. I was just kind of looking at Orwell society, what he had created and thinking, well, if you were really living in the society um, as a woman, what would be the things, or as a gay person as well, mm -hmm. like that too, like, what would you do? What would these structures be used for? So it seemed to me obvious that, that what women would be doing is that they would be like, if they were having like unprotected sex with someone in an illicit situation and they missed a period, they would just go and get artificial semination. Mm -hmm. And then it would be instantly transformed from an illegal pregnancy into, you know, their duty to the state to have pure child. And they would be like a virgin mother instead of, you know, somebody headed to a labor camp. Um, so it's it's all kind of there in the in the book. It's funny, like how much Orwell left there, like littered through his book for you to make new things from. It was it was really fantastic. Mm. Actually. Like, again, when I actually read the book, I went from thinking, oh, what a great opportunity. Can I do this to I have to do this. If they don't let me do this, I will die. <laughs> And that, that's an interesting thing about him leaving these things, because there were quite a few moments. It's been maybe, I don't think, I don't think I've read 1984 for about maybe 12 or 15 years. And as I was reading Julia, there were a lot of moments when I was thinking, okay, is that something that's in Orwell or is that something that Sandra Newman has invented? Which I think in itself kind of is a sort of a testament to how... Um, sort of authentic uh, portrayal of um, of this world it feels. But I, I, there were a couple of moments where I was like, okay, I'm going to go back, I'll find the text online and I'll search for for these words. So, for example, um, when I first came across uh, Pornosec, for example, I, I thought, okay, this there, there was something so contemporary feeling yeah. about this. This is kind of so, an, this is a, a, a branch of... Um, the ministry or the department of fiction in the ministry of truth if i remember mm -hmm. rightly and uh, and i thought okay that's really good that's really fascinating of course you bring it in and then i went back and i saw that that was that was in orwell um similarly with the art sem like i think he only uses that term maybe once uh in the whole book or like he, he talks about it quite a bit but the actual term yeah, yeah. um is so much less relevant. but it is um it is there and that is a just a fascinating thing about um almost unconsciously he seeded these things but because it wasn't his central area of concern, they were just kind of left there to ready to be picked up by someone like you. Yeah. I, 1984 is just a much weirder book than people remember it being. Mm -hmm. Like we remember all of the, like the great political ideas and we forget the stuff like porno sack. Um, and it is partly because he, he mentions it and he moves on. And as mm -hmm. a reader, um, especially, I mean, his book is kind of, poised because as a political satire as a utopia it's poised between um being non-fiction and fiction mm -hmm. and he does ultimately feel that the non-fiction part is more important mm -hmm. when he comes up with something brilliant like pornosec he doesn't do it justice and he uh. you know, so like as again like for me that's just a fantastic opportunity because i don't have to do all of the nonfiction part because Orwell has already mm. done it for me. I can refer to it quite lightly and people already know what it mm. is. Yeah. 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 How, um, how bound to his conception of the world did you feel? So obviously there are, um, there are moments of sort of embellishment and sort of, you know, adding uh, elements of newspeak and things like that. But it felt to me that you decided to be 
quite loyal to the the inherent structure let's say of uh, of of the the society that he provides and to find your way around that does that sound does that sound fair i was with just one exception i was completely like in, insofar as i'm conscious of it i was completely loyal to his mm. conception even when i was uncomfortable i i just went with what he had and the one thing that i couldn't do was that he actually has the party being completely uh, colorblind mm. and the, there is no racism in his world and i thought like you know that's actually like so false and so mm. <laughs> you know like such a blind spot that i couldn't do it yeah. so i didn't really go into it massively because that would have completely changed his conception but i did like make that not the case because i i just it there isn't there isn't a form of totalitarianism that i'm aware of where racism is not an important plank of like what holds up the whole mm. structure do you think and i mean it's unfair to get you to speculate about it all well but do you think he sort of saw racism as a kind of it sort of was clouding it would cloud in a way his message in a way that he didn't want it to be clouded I think he was very much about a, a lot of the, the motivation for 1984 was combating the the sort of Stalin positive leftism mm-hmm. at the time, and that really had fallen for the lie that that Stalinism was anti-racist. Mm-hmm. So, so he just didn't know. I think yeah. there were things that we didn't know about Stalinism at that time. Um, I don't know who we is in that conception, actually. <laughs> <laughs> about Stalinism at that time um and that's that's one of those things where they they really believed the propaganda even in hating Stalin there were some Mm -hmm. aspects of the propaganda that they couldn't see through yeah 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 it struck me um and I've been trying to think of how to articulate this question because it's not an easy concept to explain but it struck me that one kind of restraint in a way which you had that Orwell didn't was a restraint of kind of Timeless. So when Orwell was writing in the 1940s, he was projecting forward to 1984, which is almost a kind of imaginary date, in a sense, mm-hmm. even though when you think about it, it was only 40 years in front of, you know, four decades beyond where he was writing. Yeah. And yet when we read Julia, I, I really get a sense that you kind of reckon with those four decades in a way that Orwell didn't or didn't feel he had to so mm-hmm. like sort of the the transition from like whatever you know the the english state as all well knew it in the 1940s through the 1950s you know the rise of big brother and the rise of this system um it felt like in a way as that you had to in a sense give more of a an explanation and a justification of how we could go from point a to point b because in a sense Whereas point B was in front of Orwell, in one sense, point B was was behind you. Does that does that make sense? What I'm saying? Yeah, it's sort of. You know, I I looked at it differently. Like the 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 motivation for it, I think was was different from what you're intuiting mm-hmm. in it. But it's but it's very much the case that I do account for those decades more. I think I think from my point of view, it was just that there were in approaching this book, there were ways in which it had to be exactly the same as Orwell's. Mm-hmm. But obviously it had to be really different too, or else there's no book. Mm-hmm. And there were some things like revelations about that society that you can make without betraying the original. Mm-hmm. And one of those things is filling in those lost years yeah. and, and the people. And, you know, I mentioned 
people like Winston Churchill, mm-hmm. you know, without anybody knowing who he is. It's just yeah. like Winston persists. So how do people account for that? Like, mm. where did that name come from? Maybe it's not a mystery to them. But but to me, you know, it was a thing that people thought about. Um, and what happens to the royal family? You know, I thought that was, I, I don't know why it's humorous to think of them <laughs> in the revolution, but it is. Um, so, so yeah, I, I just kind of mentioned these things and I think they're, they're sort of like almost Easter eggy. They're mm-hmm. things for the reader to actually have that world made a little bit more concrete and real, mm-hmm. whereas Orwell made it, I mean, Orwell's book is in a lot of ways a horror novel mm. and the horror that he produces relies on, on mystery and, yeah. And, you know, like Winston pondering that perhaps 1984 isn't really the date and it could be any date. Mm-hmm. Um, and my book is much less of a horror novel and more of a thriller. Mm-hmm. So, mm. you know, insofar as either of them it fits into any genre, that's that's what they're closer to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, one of the things that that I, I kind of found as I was reading through, would, and I, I suppose in a way, it perhaps shouldn't have come as, as a surprise how I've sort of read about sort of life in, for example, uh, the former East Germany or sort of short stories from North Korea. But is this sort of how, depending on your position in the society, the um, the tightness or looseness of the restrictions uh, will feel different. So when we read 1984, at least my memory of it, it's a sort of, it feels such a kind of a straitjacket on Winston. Mm. And then in reading Julia, it suddenly made me reevaluate Winston and we'll come on to him in a minute. But like this sense of maybe he wasn't, you know, and no offense to him or people like it, but maybe he wasn't like the most imaginative citizen of Airstrip One. And in fact, the society we find in Julia, I mean, it's got all of these restraints and all of these oppressions of Airstrip One, but there's a kind of a looseness to it. So people who are a bit more canny or are a bit more imaginative like Julia or like the, um, you know, the proles, the, the working class people in a weird kind of way, the, the, there's more space for them to, they find more space to be human perhaps in a, uh, in this society as it's constructed than, than Winston Smith was able to. Yes. And I think that um, Orwell actually alludes to this. Orwell, like, again, all of this is in Orwell. Like he actually, if you read 1984 really closely, Winston Smith eventually comes across as somebody who is like maximally restricted by the society mm-hmm. because he's because he's like an honest man. You know, mm-hmm. he is unable to. He's unable even to even after he knows about the black market, he's unable to try to engage with it. Like weirdly, he allows his girlfriend to buy him black market goods throughout the book without ever <laughs> or any money which is <laughs> but but basically he takes it for granted mm. that that his much younger girlfriend will be the one who who takes the risk of buying black market goods and provides him with black market mm. goods he's so unable to paint up to color outside the lines he's so unable to bend the rules he's a very rule following kind of person and i think in some ways orwell i I always think, I don't know that this is true, but I think in some ways Orwell was making fun of some aspects of his own mm-hmm. personality. Like, you know, it's it's a very it's a very kind of merciless portrayal of a certain kind of limited person mm. who 
by virtue of his limits, is able to see and care about things other people don't care about, you know. Whereas Julia is the opposite. Julia is the sort of person who just blithely makes a life for herself by, like, working both in and outside of the rules. Mm -hmm. um, and But you can see, like, in 1984, again, like, she's had all of these affairs before. She's always, like, taken it for granted that you buy things on the black market. And, and Winston runs into other people who are trading on the black market in the course of the book, too. Trading on the black market is normal in this world. Yeah. And clearly having affairs is not that abnormal either. She's able to have so many without getting killed. Mm. That obviously happens all the time. Um, and it's a bit odd. Like Winston never is not completely incurious about these things, which <laughs> that's all about. But but it's it's really like there there is room within that book to imagine this whole other world, which I think is true of of such societies. Like I think there are moments when they actually manage to kill all of that, but it comes back really quickly, mm -hmm. and they and they tend to be characterized by a lot of rule breaking, a mm -hmm. lot of corruption, a lot of anarchy, um, a lot of like no-go zones where all kinds of things happen. Um, and people, just, and it just isn't talked about. Mm -hmm. And do you think it, there is something in the fact that sort of the, the people we find sort of breaking the rules are sort of so Julia as a woman, the working class people, you know, people, maybe, maybe gay people as well. Like, because in, in a sense, it's sort of because they are even less accommodated for that by the society than somebody like Winston they're almost kind of you know it's a it's a pressure thing they're almost sort of pushed into rule breaking for their for their own survival yeah I think there there's definitely an element of that but but it's also in 1984 it's very much a feature that the proles there, there's a line that he says there's a slogan of the party proles and animals are free mm -hmm. because they're of little importance they don't get surveilled as much and I think that's a bit of a like a pressure valve for for the whole society to allow things to go on, you know, in the cracks, in the margins. Then then the higher ups also can get black market goods because somebody lower down. It's like it's like the drug trade mm -hmm. in Western societies now. Like you have the people who don't matter yeah. to the society commit these crimes, like the real crimes, so that the people above can have cocaine. And then if they get caught, nobody cares what happens to them. Mm -hmm. But you can, but you mostly look the other way because you don't want them to get caught because the society wants this to continue happening. Yeah. And it's exactly the same kind of thing. A band of children played in the road. And as Julia hopped off her bike and wheeled it to the hostel wall, they all began to chant, gathered around one girl who was hopping over a chalk pattern and bouncing a rubber ball around her feet. Julia recognized the game. It was Hang'em. The chalk pattern represented a gibbet, and you hopped over it to the rhythm of a chant. If you hit a chalk line with foot or rubber ball, you became the enemy and were hanged. Hang'em had been devised by the legendary Mamie Fay from the children's department at the Ministry of Truth. She who'd written the songs The Little Spy's Promise and Piggy Cannot Hide. It was made to commemorate the hanging 
of the three most famous enemies of the people, the turncoats, Rutherford, Aronson, and Jones. The signature Mamie Faye touch was adding an imaginary uncle to the list of enemies. In children's stories, an uncle was always being unmasked as a spy by a sharp-witted niece or nephew. The chant went, Rutherford, Aronson, your uncle and Jones, supper for the gallow birds, eyes and bones. They kick and they kick, they blubber and moan, but we don't care, we know what they've done. Hang them up naked in the rain and the snow. Rutherford, Aronson, your uncle and Jones. At the end, the player threw the ball high in the air and tagged another player who had to catch the ball before it hit the ground or else become the enemy and be hanged. That meant performing some penalty, lapping up puddle water or letting all the other players pinch your arm. Ordinarily, Julia thought the game's nastiness was a laugh. The horrid things children liked. Today, though, her mind went back to O'Brien and Smith gazing at him with adoration. Out of nowhere, she remembered Smith's first name, Winston. A lot of chaps that age were named Winston. No doubt for some hero of the revolution, who'd later turned traitor and got himself erased. That Winston would have gone through the Ministry of Love, or whatever it was called back then. As Julia's mum used to say, he went through love when it was only fond regard. The children had noticed Julia now, and a weasel-faced boy in the uniform of the spies was squinting at her suspiciously. Julia smiled amiably at him and turned to the door of Women's 21 with pointed casualness, making a note to herself to keep her chocolate ration for the kids this week. If they knew you were good for the occasional treat, they wouldn't be so keen to make up stories about you. Anyway, only a child could really stomach that sickly chocolate. On the subject of Julia um, herself, you said like when you started rereading the book, well, you'd already had this sort of sentiment that Julia was, you know, had, had been done an injustice almost in this book. Um, did you, when you, you know, had this project in mind, did you started rereading it? Did her character come to you quite sort of fully formed from the kind of Orwell sketch of it? Or did it take you quite a while to kind of to get to know your Julia and to get her on the page? I I felt her really immediately. Like mm. I got her, I got her voice really quickly. Um it did it took a while for it to you know, it, there there's always some stuff that shakes out and and certainly like there were constraints that you don't normally have when inventing a character because I was because because of the strange way the book came about, like I had carte blanche from mm. the Orwell estate to to use anything from the book I wanted, mm. which meant that I could use, like there are entire scenes between Julia and Winston where I haven't really used any other part of it, but I use all the dialogue. Mm. Like all the dialogue is, is the same. Um, and that means that you can't really change the character that much. Mm -hmm. She has to be a character who would say those things in that situation. She might say them for reasons that Orwell didn't think of, mm -hmm. but 
she has to say those things in that situation and it has to feel natural. So, so that was sort of like, I, I started like with this voice in my head of her and then I reconciled that with what she actually says and does in the book. And you sometimes have to come up with, you know, it's almost like solving a, a murder mystery. Like, why would she do this? I have mm. to come up with a, a reason she would do this. Like there, there's some things in the book that are, you know, like Orwell allows himself because it's not a book that's focused on plot. He allows himself some wild implausibility mm-hmm. and it doesn't really matter in the context of that book, but, but in the context of my book, it did matter. So it was a big pain in the ass for me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like why, why you- does she approach him by handing him a note that says, I love you. A statement, which is never addressed again. Like, uh-huh. no asked, like, why did you love me when we had never spoken before? <laughs> And I'm just like kind of a puny, sickly 40-year-old man. Why did you love me particularly? <laughs> Nobody asked that question. Yeah. So I had to account for it, that somehow. Yeah, you, you had to fix Orwell's problems. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, if there were problems for him, obviously. His book did fine. But, yeah. but you know, if you're writing another book, they suddenly do become mm-hmm. and, and what about julia's backstory then because we do get a certain about amount of information about uh you know where she came from i mean you gave her a name as well which is sort of because i think orwell was very good at naming his characters yeah, yeah. and i think you know so you know uh we, we could we could give the name to our listeners right that's not a spoiler uh, so no it's just julia worthing it's just it's, it rings so right in some it's both for kind of something orwellian and also just for the the character, um, could you talk a little bit about how you how her how her life story came to you? Her life story, yeah. I thought there are a lot of points in 1984 where she says something to Winston, mm-hmm. which I think, in the context of that totalitarian society, would be very unlikely to be true. You know, she mm-hmm. you wouldn't tell people all about your childhood, for instance, like. If your parents had been made on persons and killed, you know, you'd, you would you would obfuscate all of that mm-hmm. and you wouldn't tell people. So so I was just thinking of like what kind of childhood she would have had that she wouldn't want to talk about. And he doesn't really pry about mm-hmm. he doesn't he doesn't ask her much about her life at all. Actually. <laughs> Utterly incurious. Which is which is like Orwell is very funny about that kind mm-hmm. of relationship. I think it's a very good depiction in a way of that kind of relationship with a, a very self-obsessed man and he has and there's a reason for it it's a, it's a society that isolates and atomizes people so he has no yeah. social skills it's not it's not wrong in yeah. a way but but I'm curious about Julia so it's very frustrating to me so anyway I I wanted her backstory to represent a part of the society that isn't represented in 1984 mm-hmm. um so I had her come from the countryside 1984 is a very london centric mm. Um, I think it's partly even about Orwell's hatred of London. <laughs> he, he really loved the countryside and hated the city. Um, so, so, and yeah, and yeah, I also like a lot of, I, I studied Russian at university. Mm. I actually managed to spend six months in the Soviet Union just before it fell. Mm. So I've been fascinated by the Soviet Union pretty much all my adult life. And I wanted to work in as much of the side of Stalinism that didn't make it into 1984 mm. as I could. And that meant that I wanted to talk about the, you know, the Holodomor, the starvation of the countryside, mm. the 
you know, political famine that took place in the 1930s. And I worked that into Julia's backstory. Um, just just to make an already grim story even grimmer, but but her childhood isn't all grim. It's 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 sort of a combination of a lot of different things. Mm-hmm. And it seems to be, in a sense, that which gives her her kind of um, adaptability. In a sense, like that's what I think that was probably. If I had to give one word to describe your Julia, it's as if she, particularly compared to Winston, it's as she does she seems kind of adaptable to. Um, to what life and what the the society throws at her, uh, in a way that um, I mean, I'm thinking of uh, of her reaction. We'll come on to talk about this in a minute. Her reaction to torture compared to um, to Winston's is much more a sort of uh, confrontational, <laughs> in a sense, than uh, that, that we get from Orwell. But uh, but yeah, that seems to that adaptability seems to be rooted in in this kind of childhood. Out, I guess, outside of London and that sort of environment yeah i think she's i mean part of it is just character i think people are you know to some degree people are just what they are Mm -hmm. um but she's she's also someone who has become accustomed to the very worst Mm -hmm. and to and to dramatic change the worst and to good things you know to the unpredictability and the complete unsafety Mm -hmm. of life in this world from the time that she's a small child yeah which seems in a in a way to maybe map in a sense to the sort of the different experience of being a man and being a woman in our societies too mm-hmm. like uh that does seem to me anyway a sort of uh that that women uh well, as young girls have uh, are kind of forced to become kind of more adaptable and kind of more imaginative and and um and yeah and more resistant in a way uh that young boys um aren't really asked to be yeah, and there, there's also, girls are told, they're taught insofar as society can teach them to do this, to have a big discrepancy between what they say outwardly and what they feel inwardly. Mm-hmm. You're not mm-hmm. supposed to be angry. You're not supposed to be critical. You're not supposed to be negative. They're all, they're all of these things, which are very, you know, a little like what totalitarian governments mm-hmm. make you do, you know, that you have to express positive feelings when you don't when you feel negative feelings mm-hmm. and you know you already know what you're supposed to say and if you don't say it um you're ostracized mm-hmm. you know you lose your social network that's the, that's the main punishment um and 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 there are other things of course you know you can lose your job you can lose all of these things obviously you're not put in a labor camp so it's clearly not to totalitarianism strictly speaking but it's just another example of that kind of, you know, that kind of social structure. Mm-hmm. Totalitarianism is repurposing, actually. Like, it's it's interesting. And and Orwell did call his book initially The Last Man in Europe. Mm-hmm. This feeling like that totalitarianism actually emasculates Winston, that mm-hmm. it emasculates men um, and turns them into not men. Whereas, it, you know, Winston... Sorry, uh, Orwell is not so concerned with this effect on women and mm-hmm. doesn't doesn't really conceive of the intellectual discrepancy as mattering as much for them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Was it um was it fun for you to kind of be able to shine a different light on Winston himself? Because like, I mean, it's he's not 
I wouldn't go as far as to say he's kind of a, a, a typical hero in Orwell's novel, but he is kind of our hero. You know, he is the one we know. He is the one that we root for, even if at times he can be sort of surprising and annoying or sort of incomprehensible. You know, we're still we're still with him. And yet, like the very first moment we meet him, I mean, uh, you know, he's we find out his nickname is kind of old misery and he's this this kind of. Yeah, very kind of straight laced, very yeah, buttoned up, grim character who's almost a figure of fun to Julia. Yeah, it's but what's funny is like I was just uh, magnifying like a side of him that's in the book. Definitely. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and I think we remember him as being much more of a hero than he actually is in the book, where he's he's often just like struggling to get through his calisthenics because he has a sore on <laughs> has a cough and he's just and I think you know Orwell is actually really merciless to Winston and if Winston states something authoritatively within a few chapters it will be shown to be not true mm-hmm. like that that is like a typical thing to happen in 1984 like his his pronouncements are often wrong mm. and he's, he's and it's very actually very interesting because he's taken very seriously by the book but also kind of mercilessly lampooned by it. And I think that was, I, I don't know. It, it feels very much to me like somebody having a relationship to himself. Mm-hmm. It really does feel like it's a very unusual way of writing a stand-in for the author. Yeah. And it's much deeper and more psychological than most such characters. Mm-hmm. So he allows, he allows Winston to be a hero in, in some of the ways he was a hero in being clear-sighted and in insisting on his truth and not being uncomfortable when he was wrong later, just mm. like accepting his truth, you know, accepting the limitations of, of a human being, not pretending to be the smartest person in the world, but also like insisting on what he saw as true and, you know, not allowing other people to convince him that what he saw was not what he saw. Mm-hmm. So he gives Winston all of that, but he also he also makes Winston sort of fatuous. Actually, mm-hmm. like sometimes he's fatuous. He like he leaps to conclusions. He's full of himself. He thinks that he thinks that he admires the pearls, but actually he has a middle class person's dismissiveness towards them mm-hmm. in an unusual degree. Mm-hmm. Doesn't. He doesn't really take Julia seriously, even as she's right about various things. Um, he has a crush on O'Brien, who turns out to be the authoritarian, you know, the quintessence of authoritarianism. Like, like that's a joke about Orwell is making about himself, I think, mm-hmm. that if you scratch an anti-authoritarian, you find somebody who worships authoritarianism on some emotional level like he's saying that he's not you know that's not a mistake he's saying that and and i think that's fascinating but also like if you're not if you're not winston smith Mm. then it's also a little ridiculous yeah 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 it's interesting what you say about his um his vision of the proles because again as somebody who hasn't read 1984 for a while but has read a lot of orwell over the last few years is that one of the blind spots I consider with Orwell, alongside the way he he writes and often thinks about women, is the way he writes and thinks about the working class. And so in reading Julia, I, I felt there was a real um, 
consciousness of that. I mean, there's a moment where she uh, she kind of reflects. Poor Winston. He talked to a single pro and felt he knew there was all there was all there was to know about them. Um, but do you say that that's something you feel Orwell kind of acknowledges that in Winston as well in the book, or was that something that you felt you needed to sort of to, to highlight that side of both Winston, but also perhaps of of Orwell? Well, like like I said, I, I think I might be in a bit of denial about Orwell and mm. his shortcomings, but <laughs> no, I do feel like a lot of people who have big blind spots, especially mm. when it concerns something that they think about a lot, they feel the blind spot there, mm. and they begin to have like a reaction to it, and they form all of these ideas around it, the blind spot, so that you can see the blind spot more and more clearly. But they still can't see it. See, you know, it's still a blind spot. So I think that's probably what it really is. Mm-hmm. But you could you can read like you can read the parts where Winston Winston does talk to one prole who's mm-hmm. like an old drunk he meets in a pub, and concludes on the basis of that one conversation with like literally a senile, senile old drunk that nothing could be expected from the proles. <laughs> They have no political ideas, no memory. And it's, you know, how could Orwell not see that that's ridiculous? Like, surely that's satire. Surely (laughs) Winston as a middle class man who does this and of himself, Mm -hmm. you know, like it is at the end of his life, you know. So I like to think he was beginning to have some clarity about these shortcomings in him and was beginning to make fun of them. I don't know that that's the case, Mm -hmm. but I like to think that. Yeah. Um, I mentioned earlier there was a, um, uh, and I guess this, this isn't really a spoiler because it's, you know, it's we're writing about Airstrip 1 and Oceana here, here, that there was a scene of torture. Um, and I have I have to confess I found it very very difficult to read like so like to the point I had to I had to put the book down a couple of times and get some air and like it was really really vivid and really really powerful, um, and I felt sort of a much more heightened description of torture and the way that oppressive regimes do sort of, you know, the the actual, I guess, the sort of the physical experience of it Mm. than I at least remember there being in, um, in 1984. Was it, what, 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 what motivated that decision to, to, if it was a decision to kind of, to ramp up the, 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 the the vividness of these uh, of these scenes. Um, you know, I didn't. I don't think that was intentional. <laughs> it's just um, you can't you can't control what you're good at. And mm-hmm. I'm fortunately, or fortunately, as an author, I'm good at violence. Uh-huh. Okay. <laughs> I was always good at fight scenes. Yeah. Like, yeah. 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 So I think that's an aspect of that. Um, and I would say, like, it's interesting in, in Orwell that, that the torture part of the narrative goes on for 40 pages. Mm-hmm. It's really long and it's really, really hard. It's hard to read, too. But but I think it's less it's less the visceral part of it is much less concentrated. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think like one of the things I admired most in the book on rereading was how good he is at showing you what it's like to feel that helplessness and pain. Mm. So a lot of it, I'm trying to, I was trying to do that same thing 
um, in 10 pages because I didn't feel like the reader would tolerate 40 pages of torture for me. <laughs> I, really, I, I didn't want to write it myself. But um, there's like there's just one moment when he is first struck by the guards, mm-hmm. like he's been taken out of the, I guess, the gen pop cell, the holding cell, and he's clubbed on the elbow. Like it's mm. just elbow. And I think that's that's intentional on the part of Orwell. Like he's waiting to be hit and he's afraid of where it will be. And then it's the elbow. Mm. But he the pain is so great that he's collapsed to the floor and it overwhelms his world. And he really makes you feel that. Like it's really magical how he's able to make somebody being hit on the elbow filled with all the terror of all the other places mm. he's going to be hit. All the other things that will be done to him. It's really, it's really fantastic. So I was just trying to to convey that again, mm-hmm. um, and and I think also like there's like in I I did feel sort of though that I, the things that were done to people were so much worse than what Orwell has happened to to Winston, mm-hmm. and I kind of felt a need to to include that yeah no i i think that at the time it wasn't it was a more straight laced time and the body was still a little bit off limits mm-hmm. and talking about the body in graphic terms mm. would have made it a less popular book and he was very concerned with making it a popular book and now that's just not the case so yeah. i was freer to do that one thing that struck me um when i when i heard about the book to begin with was that the fact that um you are a writer of English, but you are not an English writer. Uh, and Orwell, in a way, was one of those kind of, I guess, quintessentially English, not even British, but quintessentially English writers. Um, was that a point of concern for you? I mean, it, in reading the book, it feels a sort of rooted in England and Englishness. Uh, but did was it was it a was it a, a concern of yours? And, um, before beginning the book and was it a challenge to to kind of to channel that Englishness in the writing? Um, I should say that I did live in England for 18 years. Mm. No, from the time I was 18 to the time I was 36 and I come back all the time. So, you know, I was married twice in England, actually. Two English people, I mean. Um, <laughs> and so, um, so I do have that background, but it was... I mean, it was obviously a concern, maybe even more of a concern to somebody who has been American in England and known mm-hmm. how many pitfalls there are and how many like little times <laughs> you don't imagine. And there was a copy editor who still found like more things like me saying store when I meant shop. Uh. <laughs> again and again. You know, like little things like that, that that's where I thought that I'd got the voice just absolutely mm-hmm. correct and flawless and no you haven't um so yeah it was and and weirdly i did i think i seem to have done better with the proles mm. than which may like speak to the friends that i had when i was in england, mm. in england. but anyway the the um yeah the, i think it was from my time spent in england and also again, through sheer luck, like it was so weird when they came to me with this book because it was the perfect book for me to write at that moment. I had just become, during the lockdown, I had become really obsessed with mid-century British fiction written by women. Mm. And so I was reading 
I mean, mid-century, meaning mid-20th century. Sure. Like, um, so I was reading all of these all of these books, like Barbara Trepido and um, Barbara Comins and Penelope Fitzgerald and all, you know, these British women. The Barbaras and the Penelopes. <laughs> like, like I had a file about them called Barbara Books. <laughs> I began to think of them. I want I want to trade an essay about them, but I I still haven't quite figured out what to say about yeah. them. Or I would not, I haven't figured out how to sell it. I know what I want to say about them, but I would <laughs> publish it. Um, so anyway, I was really fascinated by them and by the voice and by the world of books and the the world view, which is really really much stranger than people give it credit for. You know. Mm. There are all these books like written just after World War II that treat World War II as the stupid business that the men were involved in. <laughs> like no time for any of the heroism or tragedy or anything. It was stupid. It was a waste of life. It killed a lot of people for no fucking reason. And it's and it's treated that way without even talking about it. Yeah. It's just that's the attitude. It's really, it, I that's, found it really fascinating. That's so funny because just the other day I was talking about somebody about how the fact that um, one of the problems we had in England, I think over the Brexit years, is like a lot of the pro-Brexit people like the Farages were children shortly after this, the, the Second World War, but their fathers who'd fought in it didn't really talk about it. Because it was so ha- well, I, I was going to say because I thought it was so harrowing, but perhaps it's because their wives were saying, "Oh, shut up about that stupid business." <laughs> <laughs> like another thing that I'm kind of fascinated by is, I think I really believe that twenty twentieth, the particular form twentieth century misogyny took, like as partly evidenced in Orwell's work, mm. um, was really shaped by the two world wars mm. and by the different experiences of men and women in those years and how women bought the propaganda or didn't in one way and men bought the propaganda or didn't in another mm. way. They, like people who were at the front came home and resented the people at home for having like, for having supported world war one in mm. particular world war one was a big problem in this respect. Yeah. Yeah. We yeah. couldn't forgive home for having done that to them. And world war two was different but in some ways the same like actually having been there and seen those things you couldn't talk to people who hadn't seen them and you couldn't help presenting them mm-hmm. i suppose where i want to um finish is coming a little bit back to that idea of the um the the looseness of the society uh because in as portrayed in julia compared to as portrayed in in 1984 again without getting into any sort of spoiler territory in a weird kind of way, I think it allows you to give a little bit of hope, a little mm-hmm. bit of air to the um, to the novel. Was that was that important for you not to have it f- be quite as sort of unrelentingly depressing as uh, as the world that Orwell created and and at the point that he left it on. This is one of those things where it just had to be a different novel. Mm-hmm. I couldn't write the same book again. Mm-hmm. So I couldn't end it on the exact same note yeah. and couldn't have the exact same kind of warning. But I, I also thought, you know, I thought about a lot of thought about it a lot as I was writing the book. And I really felt that we're in a different moment mm-hmm. with totalitarianism. He was in a moment that where 
to some degree, like for his society, the threat, the huge threat had passed. Mm-hmm. He was saying there is still a threat. There is still a threat and trying to tell people that. And, and I think to some degree, like he, he even saw like the Atli government as being potentially totalitarian. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that was very realistic, but so, so I guess what I'm trying to say is that writing that book after World War II is different from writing it now with mm-hmm. new totalitarianism rising all around the globe. And we need that hope. Mm-hmm. You know, you can't, you can't, telling people there is no hope is not useful at a moment when we can still defeat this thing um, while it is still growing. I, I don't think that's a useful thing to tell people mm-hmm. as it was like, in Orwell's time, when he's, you know, he's in a very different moment in Britain writing this book. Mm-hmm. So, so that was really my thinking. Um, well, that is all we've got time for. Uh, Julia is, of course, available from uh, Shakespeare and Company. We have piles of it downstairs in the bookstore. Uh, it's available from our online shop um, and uh, from your local independent bookshop, wherever that may be. Um, all that's left for me to say is, Sandra Newman, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much, Adam. Thanks. Thank you for listening to the Shakespeare and Company podcast. If you've enjoyed this conversation, it would be great if you could help us spread the word by reviewing or rating us in your favourite app or just by sending the link to your friends. And don't forget, if you'd like even more from Shakespeare and Company, you can subscribe now through Apple Podcasts or Patreon for just €3 Euro a month. Links to both are available in the show notes to this episode. Production of this podcast is all done in-house here at Shakespeare and Company Paris. All music is by Alex Fryman, whose album, Play It Gentle, is available to buy or stream wherever you listen. We'll be back soon. Until then, take care and thanks again for listening.